0: hello everyone and welcome back to first and failure so a couple weeks ago we asked you guys to send in your experiences with cultural assimilation how you dealt with it what it meant to you as most of you guys are immigrants and we want to get to know your stories a little better because you're our listeners today we have four stories to share with some of our friends and times where they felt this all too familiar feeling
1: first one of our four stories is by our friend Gabby. She is a Russian Jewish American that we respect greatly and that we love and she has a story about a bit of anti-Semitism that she faced back in the third grade. So here's her story.
2: When I think about exclusion and feeling unwelcome because of my culture, particularly throughout my elementary school years, the most prevalent instance or situation that comes to mind really vividly happened pretty early on. I remember sitting in third grade and we were working on a worksheet or some assignment or something and our teacher instructed us to compare answers with a partner and to work together. So I looked around and found the nearest girl sitting next to me and I asked her if she wanted to work with me. And she gave me this look of disapproval, of disgust. And she said, no, I don't want to work with you. I don't want to associate with you. I don't want to be your friend. And I, being young and oblivious, was bewildered. And I asked, why? And she said, because you're a Jew. And in that moment, I didn't know how to react. I didn't know how to respond. All of a sudden, I just felt ashamed, helpless, even resentful towards the situation or the people or whatever power that had defined me as something that I had no control over in that moment or ever, because being Jewish is who I am. And at that age, I didn't really understand the severity or the significance of that interaction. I just knew that I had been wrongfully excluded. But being the shy, quiet kid that I was, I didn't tell the teacher, I didn't tell anyone, because for some reason, I thought it was my fault, and I felt ashamed looking back at it now, that's definitely a memory that stands out to me as being my first experience with anti-semitism. And you know, eventually, a few weeks later, I did find the courage to speak up about it. I told my parents, and (laughs) their reaction was quite severe. They called the school and the teacher and whatnot. The situation was addressed, but the girl denied it, as expected. Looking back at it, I realized that neither I nor that girl were really old enough to understand the prejudice behind that conversation or the meaning behind it. And I can tell now that as a third grader, those weren't her her words or her ideas. They were definitely ideas that she had overheard and adopted from her parents or some adult figure. And honestly, that in and of itself makes it all the more disappointing. I guess it all ties back into the same things that we're experiencing today, and it reinforces the fact that prejudice is definitely top, and we really need to be the generation that makes a change. When we grow up and begin building families, we should be mindful of the perceptions that we're unintentionally feeding the sponge-like minds of our children. I mean, they really do soak up and mimic everything that they see adults say and do. It's so important to feed them positive and accepting and understanding beliefs and not beliefs that encourage exclusion and prejudice. And I think if we really make that a priority and we're mindful of the things that we say and the actions that we teach, it'll make for a much better world for us and for our future children. And I hope that you can all take that into consideration because I'm sure you've all experienced some form of prejudice throughout your life because it's something that's unfortunately very prevalent in our society.
1: That's a really powerful story. It ties together really well with the fact that our parents and the people that we are surrounded by have such an immense influence on our thinking. We can't even believe that she had this kind of experience. But I I guess that some people do grow up in these kind of racially charged or religiously charged climates, I guess. Kids need to be
0: educated about these things from a young age because your environment shapes so much of who you are and what ideas you have. Gabby said it very well, like the minds of young people are like sponges. You know, be mindful of what you're saying around kids because they'll they'll pick it up very quickly.
1: Yeah, we definitely do need to raise a more conscious or uh, aware generation in the future so that people like this don't have to experience those kind of things. So next we have a story by our good friend Miriam. Now her story I think is very, very unique because she is a part of like almost a double minority, like a minority within a minority that I'll let her tell about. But yeah, she has some very interesting experiences that were really eye-opening to me personally. So we'll just let her have a go.
3: Hey y'all, my name is Maryam Aldorheel and I'm a first-gen Arab American, half Lebanese, half Syrian to be exact. I feel for a lot of first-gen kids, our whole lives almost seem like this fight to fit in with the majority. And so trying to pick a specific story is hard, because there's just so many instances I could choose from. One that occurred somewhat recently was during a trip I took to New York City. I happened to be with some other teenagers, none of whom were Arab, and we were taking a stroll around the city that evening. We happened to realize we were near the 9-11 Memorial, so we decided to visit it, as many tourists do. Anyone who's visited it knows it's a somber place, as the water streaming down the monument seems to reflect the pain of this American. As we stood there, one of the teenagers turns to me and says in a somewhat joking tone, So Miriam, is this like a trophy for your people? I was gut punched, utterly flabbergasted that as we stood there reading the names of the victims and reflecting on such a horrific event, that someone would say that to me. I couldn't respond. I walked away and started crying on the opposite corner of the memorial. I had never wished to be white more than I did at that moment. I felt almost every racial antagonization me or my family had to experience all at once as tears streamed down my face. All the times I was teased for being a terrorist or part of ISIS growing up, my dad being seen as suspicious by TSA officers just for his name and place of birth. My parents and I refusing to speak Arabic at airports in certain public places for fear of that racially heated stare down that you get from people around you that I feel we non-white Americans know so well. The realization that I'm standing at a place that has almost forever caused the demonization of my people, the wars, the slow crumble of my homelands, as my parents painfully watched their families back home deal with the slow demise of our countries. At that moment, I felt so alienated from my American nationality, even though I was born here to two American citizens. I felt that I couldn't be American, that no other Americans would see me as anything more than a traitor on this soil. And while the teenager, After realizing how inconsiderate and racist what they said was, ran after me to apologize, I came to recognize that they wouldn't have said that to anyone else in the group. But even if it was a joke, and a very bad one at that, it wouldn't have been said to anyone else because it wouldn't have applied. When they said your people, they meant Arabs and Middle Eastern people. It was because of that I wished I could have been part of a different people, a people who aren't viewed as collectively complicit in such a horrendous act. However, to transition into another facet of my identity, I've realized that to some Americans, my religious identity seems discordant with their view of what an Arab is, and it somewhat confuses them as to how they should profile me. I'm an Arab Christian, Antiochian Orthodox, to be exact, and for some reason, that fact is ludicrous to many non-Arabs. I cannot even begin to count the amount of times this has happened to me, but whenever someone finds out I'm Arab, they always start motioning circularly around their head, stating, shouldn't you wear that scarf thing? Which is their terminology for the hijab that Muslim women choose to wear for modesty purposes. I then have to go through the explanation of, no, because I'm not Muslim, I'm actually an Orthodox Christian. Which is almost always followed by the, oh, when did you convert? To which I answer, I never did, I was born Christian. To which the user responds with, when did your parents convert? leading me to having to tell them that not all Arabs are Muslim and vice versa, and that Arab Christians have existed for centuries because literally for Christ's sake, Jesus was a Middle Eastern man. Nonetheless, I can never help but notice how when I mention my religious identity, I become an enigma, like some kind of Arab unicorn that shouldn't exist. It somehow always made me feel less of an Arab that for some reason, I was missing out on an important aspect of the Arab-American experience. Since a majority of Arabs in today's day and age are Muslim, that my validness, per se, as an Arab wouldn't be questioned if I just was Muslim. And the thing is, this confusion is not something I ever experienced in the Arab community itself, but just in Western societies. Yes, there is religious strife in the Middle East between Muslims and Christians, which is something I won't get into just considering how heavily involved the whole situation is. But I'm never seen as being less Arab or that my ethnic heritage is invalidated or confusing due to my religion because it's just common knowledge that Arab Christians are real and have been an established community within the Arab world for a while. And this realization was important to me because it helped me acknowledge the fact that my discontentment in my heritage, in my identity, was because I was trying to prescribe myself to Western standards of what I should be, or what would be convenient for their Western understanding of my identity. It would feel much easier to have a last name of Smith and a European background so that I could avoid racial profiling and teasing, but that isn't me. It would be much easier to help Western society accept my identity if I could just be the stereotype of what they believe an Arab should be. But that isn't me. I've come to know now that this is not my job. I'm not obligated to adhere to Western standards telling me what I should be in regards to my ethnicity because these standards and expectations come from a place of ignorance and racial stereotypes. My identity is whole. It is valid despite what any majority may tell me. The blending in with the majority is futile and worthless because it is a social construct used to stifle diversity and hinder cultural education and appreciation. Uniqueness is the essence of the human existence and it should be embraced. I hope this sheds some light on my experience and view on this topic and thanks again guys for including me. I
1: find that I'm really only part of one minority, yet Miriam's experiences as a minority within a minority are so powerful. I, too, have definitely asked Miriam about her Christian background because I'd never met an Arab Christian. I think that her identity is so unique because she's kind of torn between these two. Like, which one does she resonate with more? Which community accepts the other? You know, because it's a kind of really charged environment, especially in the Middle East where religion is such a very hot topic. But I think that her experiences within these two communities is really powerful. So thank you so much, Miriam, for telling us your story.
0: So next we have our dear friend Gokul. And Gokul's been someone who, honestly, for the longest time, I've went to school with him for seven years now. And he's been well-liked and loved by all. So to hear his story was really interesting to me because it's like the typical immigrant story. But I'll let him explain why.
4: One time that I've kind of wanted to fit into the crowd, it's not really one time, but... Honestly, throughout middle school and freshman year and sophomore year, I would always bring really strong smelling Indian food to school. And um, I got really embarrassed by it at some point because I noticed I would kind of hide my lunchbox. I would like take a bite and then immediately close my lunchbox to make sure the smell doesn't escape because I was worried about what people around me thought or if they were going to make fun of me. And looking back, I really do regret that because first off, that food was delicious. Like there's nothing to hide about that. But also, like I shouldn't have really cared about what other people thought, like whether they would make fun of me or whether they would, like, um, be like, "Yo, your food so, smells so bad." Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't have really thought about that too much because at the end of the day, that is my roots, that is my people, and um, like now nowadays, I'm a lot more proud of where where I come from. I'm more educated about my culture, and I think that's really important because there's definitely people, um, people that I know, like younger kids that still experience that. They kind of, like, are not really proud of where they come from. Like, they wouldn't really bring Indian food to school. But honestly, like, I would really encourage that because, like, learning more about your own culture, learning more about your own roots is really important. And, like, honestly, like, I mean, not just this, but that kind of stuff kind of added to my self-identity, and I'm a lot more proud of my South Indian culture. And um, I'm curious what you guys think about that because I'm sure I'm not the only one um, that's gone through that. So, yeah, just let me know your thoughts. Thank you.
1: So food, right? It's such a central part of pretty much every culture on this planet. And for a lot of immigrant children, I know for me, it's one of the only links that we have back to our heritage and back to our homeland, right? Like it's the food that we get to eat every day. And having to hide that every day when you go to school can honestly be a little a little sad. I thought that This whole Smell of Spices story was um, really powerful. And we've certainly had similar experiences. And lastly, we have our Asian-American friend, Shauna. We love her. She is a Chinese-American with a very traditional immigrant story. Like, honestly, you could write a novel about her parents and how much they worked their way up to where they are today. So I'll let her tell her story.
5: I want to say my parents came to America in their late teens, When they were around my age, they came alone without their family, without any belongings, and without any money. And I'm not sure how true this story is. I could be jumbling up some of the facts, but I remember my dad once told me that when he came to America, all he had with him was a slip of paper with his uncle's name on it and his phone number, and somehow he was able to contact him and stayed with him up in New York working in his restaurant as a dishwasher to earn money, until he had eventually made some connections with other people in the food business who had better job offers for him. And my parents didn't have any education, really. I don't think either of them made it to high school. I'm pretty sure my dad didn't even finish middle school. I mean, when they came to America, they just went straight to work. And so you'd think that since they were so young in America, it wouldn't be that hard for them to be able to immerse themselves into American culture. Um, and that the household my siblings and I grew up in would probably be somewhat similar to that of a typical American family. Um, and while that isn't a far-off assumption, there were definitely many discrepancies that were difficult for us to understand growing up as first-generation Asian Americans. And as a first-generation Asian American, I've definitely witnessed a lot of contradicting values in my parents, where it seemed as if at times they only valued certain things over another, like labor over education and education over enjoying life, but physical health trumped all of that and mental health didn't really have any particular importance. And I feel like this is pretty normal for many people, especially people with foreign parents. And as you begin to grow older and have a better grasp on the world, you really begin to see where the differences lie between your family and your white friend's family. Um, obviously I'm overgeneralizing, so I'm using that term loosely. My siblings and I grew up going to private school. We lived in a pretty nice area surrounded by the suburbs, where our apartment was right across the street from the restaurant that my parents owned, and also right across the street from the school we all went to. So basically, four Asian kids all going to the same private school. I was probably one of two Asians in my grade. Diversity wasn't really a thing there but at the same time we were all kids and we didn't really think much about it I'm not even sure if I'd even notice at the time but I do remember my school being really open about different ethnicities Um, in the first grade we had this thing called like traveling around the world where we all made passports and during class we learned about the different countries and the cultures and I think we had like some kind of cultural feast to where my dad brought like egg rolls and taught everyone how to make sushi or dumplings or something. The point is that I grew up in a very white part of my city as an Asian American, so even though I wasn't in first grade feeling oppressed for being ethnic, uh, being ethnic always made me different than everyone else. But at the same time, being American always made me different from asians too my parents are both from a specific region in southern china called fuzhou where they speak a different dialect along with mandarin and so there's this term that my mom always uses with a negative connotation um and i don't know the exact translation for it and because of that i kind of never really been sure what it truly meant or where it applied exactly um as any typical Girl growing up, I was obsessed with pretty dresses and fancy shoes and like dolls. Um, and my mom would call that being hiao. And it wasn't necessarily a bad thing until I was actually older. So when I first started caring a lot about how I looked and what I wore, I was scolded for being yahiao. Um, when I wanted to go out with my friends over the weekends, I was scolded for being yahiao. When I first started wearing makeup, I was scolded for being yahiao. Things that were normal to American culture, but not really a necessity, uh, were seen as useless and a waste of time to my mom. She would say, instead of wasting all your time, you could be studying, or learning a new talent, or working at the restaurant, or doing your chores, or etc. A normal American girl, I was conditioned by mom to only focus on the things that really mattered. But that's not true. Both matter. And as an Asian American, you can't choose to be just American, but you also can't choose to just be Asian. Um, Both matter. It just takes time and experience to be able to learn how to balance the two worlds and the cultural values of them. Um, And it's okay to value one side over another in particular situations, but values are also based on your own personal preferences as well, so they change from person to person. And in having different values from, say, your parents or your friends, eventually they'll end up clashing, and that's normal. Um, and I think that's something that people need to understand, and it's something that took me a while to understand, too.
0: So in this story, we see um, parents who don't really understand the importance of mental health only because they've they've never really been accustomed to the situations of mental health because for them physical work and hard work was really all that mattered in life it was a place that got you places but that's not always the case and I can really resonate with how
1: she was feeling because my parents were the same way so just the typical like first-gen Asian American with the contradicting values right like and also the contradicting identity like am I Asian or am I American you're kind of stuck in the middle like you're not Asian enough for the Asians and you're not American enough for the Americans and she also talked about being an Asian American in a really white part of the city and how that didn't really affect her growing up because she just kind of felt like everybody else which is that's also an experience that a lot of immigrant children have but um she also felt that she really did not fit in. Thank you Shauna, for sharing your story. Now we're going to move on to the social news of the week. So Trisha, take it away.
0: So what I found was, like, really cool. Africa finally eradicated the wild polio virus from its continent after decades of work. And if you don't understand, like, how big of a scale this is, like, this is huge. So in 1996, polio was reported to paralyze an estimated 75,000 kids annually. Nelson Mandela took strides to get people access to this life-saving vaccine. Um, as you can't treat polio, you can definitely prevent it. And the World Health Organization, Polio Eradication Efforts, Red International, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation all helped to eradicate this virus. And now that it is eradicated, I think that that is such a big deal because this polio hasn't been prevalent in developed countries for,
1: dare I say, decades. Today, only Afghanistan and Pakistan still have cases of this virus, which is great. But it is also a shocking reminder of where healthcare money really goes to. Literally think about it. Franklin D. Roosevelt got polio, right? And that was, what, 1940s? That's a long time ago. The, the Western slash developed world eradicated this quite a while ago. It shows how much more difficult it is to eradicate these things from less developed nations. That's great news out of Africa that they finally eradicated the wild polio virus. So that was today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to Gabby, Miriam, Gokul, and Shauna for telling us their stories. We appreciate you guys so much. Remember to follow us on Instagram at FirstGenFailures. You can stream our podcast on any podcast streaming platform. Um, the most popular ones are, are, of course, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you don't have those, you can also listen to our podcast on YouTube. Just search First Gen Failures podcast, and we will be right there. So thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you guys next week. Bye.